The following program is a presentation of Grand Slam Ministries. Hi again, everybody, and welcome to episode 15 of the Dan Scott Show, cleverly titled, so I don't forget the name, presented by Grand Slam Ministries, our nonprofit organization. Good to have you with us on this 16th day of April in the year of our Lord, 2023. Hope that you are doing well, that the... uh, Greatness that is spring is beginning to uh, take hold of your life. This is probably my favorite time of year because it's when you know, not only the old thing about everything, you know, springing back to life in nature, which is obviously true, but it's also when baseball season starts. And I've had a lifelong uh, love affair with the game. Sometimes it's love hate but mostly a love affair with the game of baseball. And, and that's one of the reasons I'm excited about our conversation that we're going to have today. Our guest is Dennis Sarfate, former big league pitcher with three teams in the major leagues, made his major league debut with the Milwaukee Brewers back in 2006, and then ended up spending 11 seasons in Japan where he became an absolute legend, so much so that the Japanese nicknamed him King of Closer. He was a closer, the saves guy, and man, he did it at a high, high level in Japan for 11 seasons, and uh, as I said, just became a legend there. The best part about it, though, was he became a Christian while he was playing in Japan, and by the time his career was over, he was sharing the gospel with ultimately hundreds of thousands of Japanese people who knew nothing about Jesus Christ. And then his passion then and his passion even more so now is doing everything in his power to eradicate abortion, but do it in, yes, a a passionate way, but also in a loving way and really calling other Christians out that if you're going to say, let's stamp out abortion, what then are you willing to do? This interview, I think, is going to be one that you're going to enjoy. It's going to be provocative in some places, but ultimately it all comes back to the love of Jesus Christ. We'll get to that interview with Dennis Sarfate when we return after you hear this from Grand Slam Ministries. Grand Slam Ministries exists to glorify Jesus Christ in multiple ways through this radio show and its accompanying online digital, and video components through our sister websites, danscottshow.org and grandslamministries.org, and through furthering our core missions, mentorship, and providing food and other necessities to children. None of this is possible without your prayers and support. By making a gift to Grand Slam Ministries today, you'll not only help this program remain on this radio station, You'll help us grow our family of stations, allowing us to bring stories of God working in the lives of men and women everywhere to a larger audience. And at the same time, your gift will help us in the initial launch of those core mission programs. Grand Slam Ministries is in its infancy. We need your support. Will you help us today? 
visit our website at grandslamministries.org and prayerfully consider a one-time or monthly gift today. Above and beyond anything else, please pray for our ministry. Thank you, and God bless. Like what you hear? Have a question or comment? Maybe a guest suggestion? Drop us an email and let us know. Dan at danscottshow.org And now, back to the Dan Scott Show, presented by Grand Slam Ministries. It is episode 15 of the Dan Scott Show. I am Dan. Good to have you with us as always. want to jump right into this because, as I always say, we've got a good one for you. Dennis Sarfate is a former big league baseball player, as I mentioned, who made his career, if you will, as the dominant relief pitcher for over a decade in the Japanese professional league became an absolute legend there. He and his wife and his four children reside in Arizona. And now his life's goal, his life's purpose through a pair of different organizations is to do everything he can to totally eradicate abortion from the landscape of the United States. But as mentioned in the open, doing it in a a loving way, a firm way, but a loving way, and calling on Christians to basically put their money where their mouth is. We began, though, by talking about his family because since the last time he and I talked, there's been a brand-new addition to the Sarfate clan. After three daughters, now he's got a son that's almost a year old, and I started by asking him, hey, are are you going to be one of those dads? Uh, You know, I've thought about it, you know, Obviously, when you have three girls, as soon as you have that boy, people are like, oh, you got your baseball player. Uh, for me, you know, I, I don't care if he wants to be a poet or if he wants to play baseball or golf or, or football. Um, I'll support him in any way. I'm, I always say if he does play baseball, I just hope I'm able to play catch with him. You know, I, by the time he's 10, I'll be in my 50s. So I'm hoping that I could still chuck the ball around. But, um, you know, I... Uh, I envision if he does want to play baseball, my daughters will have some really good stories. So maybe they'll, he'll trust their word that I actually was pretty decent. Um, but I would love to coach him for sure. But I wouldn't be the dad that my dad was where, uh, you know, if I had a bad game when he was my coach, he made me walk home or he would take me out of the game early and, and then send me home. So uh, I definitely want to have uh, uh, more of a, uh, just a backseat approach to it, but be there and support him. And uh, if he wants me to coach him, then 100%, I'll be in on that. Uh, we all learn lessons at different stages of our lives. And, you know, talking about being in your 50s, I saw a video. It's a, a few years old now, but uh, Nolan Ryan throwing out a first pitch at age 66 or 67, and he got like to 86 miles an hour yeah, on, on a first guy, pitch. So there's hope. That guy's a freak. <laughs> that guy's a freak. I, I watched the. Uh, the move, the documentary they just did on him, and yeah. man, he is a he. He was a man amongst boys at, at times. Uh, that guy, he there was no giving up. Um, and just as, as he is right now, as an owner of a minor league team and all that, you just see that that's how he is as a businessman. That's exactly how he was as a player. Uh, I hope I'm able to throw at 86 <laughs> in the next year when I'm 43, not 66. <laughs> 
Dennis, was baseball always a a first love for you? Yeah, ever since I was little, I think even my dad would probably tell you, um, I had a ball in my hand at a very young age. When I lived in New York growing up, I, I, I played as much as I could. When my parents moved us out to Arizona, it became just it, it, it just in, enlarged my love for it because I was able to play year round. I never knew what year round baseball meant. Um, in New York, you know, we played in the gyms with mop balls. That that was not the case here in Arizona. Uh, so I was playing where I had maybe two weeks off a year. Um, and so my love for it grew not even just as a player, but to watch it. I remember, you know, uh, opening day, we, we my my friends and I were the first uh, four people in the new uh, Diamondback Stadium back in 97. Uh, we, we waited in line from like four in the morning up until gates opened. And it was always just a thing. I loved being at the field, whether it was at a professional game or going to the, the Phoenix Firebirds games, you know, back when the when the Giants had their AAA in Phoenix, I, I just had a love for the game itself. And if my math is correct, you talk about 97, it was nine years later that you made your major league debut. It was. In, yeah, in, pretty, in 2006, right? Yeah, pretty surreal. Um, you know, the guys I always hung out with were the guys on my team. My Little League All-Star team was my varsity senior year team. Uh, Gilbert was a very small town. And it's grown now where you can't go a mile without passing a new high school. But, uh, you know, to make my debut after, you know, having this love and to actually my first major league appearance was something else. You know, I remember getting called up. I was dating my wife at the time. I flew her into Milwaukee. Uh, my parents were there. Uh, just a surreal moment. You meet Bob Uecker in the clubhouse and you're going over how you pronounce your last name and uh, what you throw with, with your coaches, you know, guys that you knew. Yeah, I was in big league camp. I knew Ned Yost uh, from spring training. But when you get to the big leagues, that's a whole new experience. Dennis Sarfate joining us on this week's edition of the Dan Scott Show. That 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 journey, that, that nine years, obviously, just getting there didn't happen. There was a lot of work that went into it. When did you realize that? that maybe you were something special, that right arm might be a gift from God and it might give you an opportunity to live out the dream. Yeah. You know, in high school, I, I was, I was pretty good. I, I won some awards in Arizona my senior year. I knew I was getting drafted. Uh, that, that was a no brainer. Um, I think once I got drafted, then you realize, Oh, there's 45 new guys every year that get drafted. So in, in 2001, when I got drafted, I was, you know, a ninth rounder, feeling good about myself, having an elbow surgery. And then I'm looking around like, well, next year, there'll be a new ninth rounder, eighth rounder, and so on. And so um, I had elbow surgery in spring of 2002. And I was a 90 to 93 guy in college, hit 95 occasionally. Well, I revamped my mechanics with a, a pitching coach here in the Arizona League named Steve Klein. He was a an older gentleman from Mississippi had a little accent and he just said, sweet P we got to change your, we got to change your mechanics. You're going to keep getting hurt. And uh, I bought into it. I spent, you know, the summer here in Arizona, which was cool for me because I lived here and I was able to live, you know, at home, still have my friends around. And I wasn't thrown into this minor league season at, you know, yet I had a whole year of getting into professional baseball of getting experience. And uh, my first game back from that elbow surgery after revamping my mechanics 
I was 97 to 101. And the Brewers, I remember the exact day I was throwing against the Cubs in a, a, a Arizona league game. I had my college coach there. All these people showed up. And uh, I remember after the game, the pitching coach, Steve Klein, and some of the other people from the front office come up to me and they say, when, you're in, when you were in college, how hard were you throwing? And I was like, oh, this isn't good. I was thinking maybe I wasn't throwing hard enough. And I said, well, I was 90 to 93, but I feel like I can get it back up there. And they said, you were 97 to 101. And I was like, what? you know, when you hear that as a, as a pitcher, you don't, you know, this is back in 2002. The Mitchell report had just come out. All this stuff had just happened where steroids were getting out of the game, right? They right. were starting to really crack down on guys. And you started seeing velocities go the opposite way than where they are now. Guys that threw 100, like Gagne, were all of a sudden throwing 89, 91 again. Um where I'm sitting here just had elbow surgery and I'm throwing 97 to 101. So uh, that's when I realized like, Hey, if I don't get hurt, this will get me to the big leagues. Did it feel any different? I mean, because obviously the way I'm, I'm hearing it, you didn't feel like you were throwing 97 to 101 when they asked the question. No, it felt easy. Like I was a, a max effort guy in, in high school and college. Um, so this just felt easier. This was like, I don't feel like the ball's coming out. As, as well as it used to. And uh, I think it was just my mechanics were, were more fine-tuned. I was I knew what my body was doing and my arm was doing less of the work. So uh, yeah, it was just, it, it's a surreal moment. I have another surreal moment later on uh, that it, I'll, I'll go into it real quick. So I play in the States, I, I'm, you know, I'm in the big leagues, 07, 08. I get, you know, I get traded to Baltimore and starting the year in the big leagues in 08, 09. I, tear an artery on my right shoulder. Um, I tear through two of the three uh, arterial, arterial walls in my right shoulder, where if I would have tore through the third one, I would have died on the, on the mound. So we're in Toronto. They rush me back to Baltimore. I'm in, a, I'm in a sling for three months, can't move my arm. Long story short, I go to spring training in 2010, and I'm throwing 82 miles. I can't even, Chad Moeller was my catcher that spring. And he's, I couldn't even throw it in the air from the mound to home plate. They were just bouncing and bouncing. He's looking out at me like, this guy used to throw 100. What's going on? I remember getting optioned down. Um, I had already been designated for assignment. So I knew I was going to AAA. They had to keep me for a little bit because they were going to pay me no matter what. So they said, might as well send me to AAA. I remember sitting there in Norfolk, about to play Norfolk State, and I'm warming up and, and – uh, the, the the head the manager there allison tom uh, what was his name i forgot his first name but uh allison was his last name he allowed me to start because i was one of the older guys and i remember warming up and mike griffin the pitching coach was sitting there with me and i felt a pop in my shoulder and i tell you what the next ball came out i was like all right that felt better that that game started i was back up to 98 99 and it like kind of re it was like a second revamping i was like i had mine in 2002 and here in 2010, and that's what got me over to Japan. I had put up 20 saves that year in the International League. Uh, through, I, I touched 100 a few times, and that got me uh, my contract in Japan and my next 11 years of history. Yeah, Dennis Sarfate joining us. He, he went to Japan. We're going to talk about that in a moment. And was so successful there that they dubbed him King of Closer. He yeah. had that that kind of career as the, uh, the back-end bullpen guy during his his time in japan was that a tough decision to make 
to, to leave uh, Major League Baseball and, and go into the unknown world of, of Japanese professional baseball? I would, I would, I bet you probably think it was, but it really wasn't. In 2010, I was ready to, after that year, I had a really great year. The team never called me back up. I was done with professional baseball in, in my mind. Uh, I had one daughter, Kinsley. Um, my wife and I were tired of the travel, the, the lifestyle, the being away. And so I went home thinking, this is probably it. You know, I knew I had a really good year. I think I put up a one ERA in the International League, 20 saves. And I said, you know, whatever happens, happens. My agent calls me and he says, hey, uh, Hiroshima wants you to come. They're offering you a two-year deal. You want to go to Japan? And I was thinking, all right. I asked, my, you know, Jada, you want to go live there for a couple of years, see how it is? And thinking that would be it. And uh, I made the jump and I was there for 11 years. So I guess it worked out. What well, what we find out, and, and one of the, the things I love about doing this show is as we continue to talk to guests from all walks of life, the hindsight that we have as believers is being able to look back and see God ordering our steps. And, and sure. I know you and I have talked previously. There ended up being a reason that you would go spend a decade in Japan. Sure. I mean, I, when I went to Japan, I wasn't even saved. Um, I would consider myself a Christian just because I was raised Catholic. I got baptized. I did confirmation. Um, but I truly didn't have a relationship with God. I was my own God. I wanted to do what Dennis wanted to do. And uh, everyone else, you know, was just in my way, uh, including my wife and, and my daughter. Uh, so, you know, in 2011, I'm there in Japan, putting up ridiculous numbers, breaking uh, new foreigner records. And I was miserable. And I remember Jada going home with, I now had two daughters. One was born March, uh, March 10th. Uh, here in Arizona, um, I remember them going home and I remember making, waking up one day miserable, crying and just crying out to God really is all I can, you know, explain it as is this moment of clarity where I said, God, if you're real, I need you because I can't keep doing this. And, uh, it was from that moment on. So God brought me across the pond. I always say 8,000 miles away from home to save me. Um, and to fast forward, you know, in my 11th year in Japan to be asked to come in and speak because of the platform I had from the success that I, that God allowed me to have to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be able to speak on, on things in my faith, uh, in an atheistic country and, and reach hundreds of thousands of Japanese people. Uh, I definitely saw the plan, uh, after it was already done. You know, I, I saw the final painting at the end, where I was trying to figure it out as God was painting the story. I was trying to figure it out. I was like, yeah, I have no idea what, what I'm doing here. Um, and then you look back now and it's like, man, God was in control the entire time and he knew exactly what he was doing. We want to get up in the morning and have an email from heaven that lays out, here's what's going to happen during your day. So yep. go and approach it this way. And God just simply doesn't work that way. Yeah, and I and I wish I said I was faithful the whole time as far as sharing the gospel every moment. You know, I had I had a hitting coach or not hitting a strength coach that ended up passing away one day. We were they were at the field and he he never woke up. And I remember we had conversations about God, why I believed, why I was doing the things I was doing. You know, my wife and I were really involved in charity work there and bringing in people and 
you know, the Japanese always ask me, Denny-san, why, why do you care so much about the Japanese? And I would always share, this is why, because God commands me to love others. And, you know, I did it, but I was thinking back to that one moment where I had with Kawashima, so I was like, I never truly like broke down the gospel. Like I, I didn't say, hey, we are all sinners apart from God. God sent his son. You know, I never walked through, walked him through the story. I just shared my faith and why I had it. And, you know, you think about those missed opportunities and it's like, man, I wasn't faithful with everything that God gave me there. As far as time, I, I wish I could go back and, and every person I talked to share the gospel, share the gospel. But then I always say God is sovereign and he wanted me to reach the people that I reached. And if, and that's, that was his will. That is his, who am I to change that story? So, um, but I do wish I was a little bit more faithful in sharing the gospel, uh, more precise. And I think more understandable for people, not the ordinary person that knows Jesus, right. That knows the story you go to a school here and you ask them who knows Jesus Christ. I'm guessing everyone in that room is going to raise their hand. They know some, some story of Jesus. They know it, whether it's, you know, this religion believes that Jesus was a prophet or this religion. I believe that Jesus was God, the son of God. And um, we all, that's the true gospel. That's the true Bible, you know, the Jesus of the right. Bible. But the Japanese people have no idea what you're talking about when you say Jesus Christ. They have no idea. And, and for me, that was the saddest part of anytime I went and spoke somewhere. Uh, when I asked children to raise their hand at, in a thousand kids in a room, uh, not one of them would raise their hand. You know, my heart would break. But then I knew, okay, well, here it is. They're gonna get. They're gonna get the gospel right here. And then I would get the gospel right. It was easy then because it's like I need to tell these people. But sometimes when you're talking to people, you're not breaking it down for them to understand. Yeah, you know it's interesting. I don't know if 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 you found this to be true at one juncture in your life, but but I do this for a living. You know, I and and I've been doing it for 38 years whether it's radio or, or whatever the case is. And, and I do a lot of speaking in crowds right now. I do not have a problem talking to crowds of, of 30 people, 300 people, 3,000 people, where I have the issue, which is strange to some people, is one-on-one. I'm, I'm, I'm programmed to talk to the crowds, and, and it's really a challenge for me sometimes to have those one-on-one conversations. Yeah, it is. It's that intimacy, right? It's yeah. the, uh, you're, you're alone. You know, I've, I've had re- really tough conversations. Um, but I think that allows, you know, those moments that are intimate like that one-on-one that I've had plenty with teammates, um, it allows you to answer some of the questions and the rebuttals that they have where when you're just speaking to a crowd, it's easy because you know that, Hey, if 10 people agree with me, then great. You know, as long as I'm, if I'm speaking to a crowd of Christians, like when I go and speak on abortion stuff, I'm not going to get booed. I'm not going to get pushed back. But when I go and share with one person one-on-one, as soon as they start to push back, it's like, well, first Peter three fifteen. do I really have, can, can I defend the faith? Right. Can I defend what I believe accurately on a one-on-one, uh, you know, if an atheist came up to me and we sat down, could I open the scriptures and point to the scriptures that say what he believes is false and and give the evidence of what I believe? Um, and I think that's why I, I, I am the same way. I can speak in front of thousands of people. It's the one-on-one intimacy uh, where you have to be 
ready to defend the faith. Uh, that gives me a little bit of, I guess, nervous, nervousness, anxiousness. Um, but I think that's what God prepares you, right? That that's where God is, is sharpening you, um, and, and using it. And I think you can't shy away from those moments because you don't like it. Those are the, those are the moments that God is like, be faithful, right? It's mm -hmm. like the parable of when he gives, uh, the talents that, you know, to the men and then, you know, invest in them, invest them well, like invest, God's invested in you, his word. Now you need to go and be faithful to it and, and do your job. The greatest conversations Jesus had in the Bible were all one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, he spoke to large crowds all the time, but the one-on-one -on -one conversations with the, the woman at the well, the woman who was taken in adultery, you can just go right on down the line. Those intimate person-to-person -person conversations had the greatest message to them, I think, anyway. Yeah, the rich man. Yeah. Right? What do I have to do to be a follower? He goes, I've kept all the commandments. I did all. He goes, go sell everything you own and follow me. And the guy was like, uh, yeah, that sounds like a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis Sarfate with us here, former big leaguer, Japanese league legend. And, and, and you dropped the magic word just a moment ago. Uh, when we were talking about those one-on-one -on -one conversations because your mission in life has become doing everything in your power to see abortion eradicated. And, and when you and I talked the first time, Roe versus Wade had not been overturned by the Supreme Court. Now it has. We'll get into that in a moment. But when we talked the first time, you, you shared a very passionate story, and it's a clip that I use when I was trying to get stations to come onto this new radio show about why it's so personal to you. Yeah. Could, could you share that story again for us, please? Yeah, sure. Um, so my wife's adopted. Um, my wife, uh, her biological mother was um, – in a relationship at a, at a truck stop in, in Tucson area. I always say Yuma cause that's where her parents were from, but from Tucson, Arizona. And, uh, the mom was young, 19 years old, had another child already. And people were, you know, telling her, have an abortion, have an abortion. And this is, you know, 1982. So it would have been, you know, fine to have one there. It wouldn't have been so controversial, I guess, to say, because they had passed this Roe v. Wade. And so people, the church kind of laid down and said, well, the, the government has spoken, so we're just going to follow it, right? Even though it wasn't law. But uh, anyway, she she goes through, has my wife, uh, gives her up to adopt to Joe and Linda, who are not Christians. They just couldn't have a child. And uh, they wanted the child really bad, so they adopt Jada. Jada got saved in high school. Uh, ended up leading her parents. God used her to lead her parents to the Lord. Her dad became a pastor. Um, when I met Jada, I was far from God. Like I said, you know, I was a raised Catholic, but really that didn't mean anything. I never saw my first Bible until I was like 26. Um, and I, I just remember her dad always praying, praying and praying for me. And I would just be like, Oh my goodness, this guy just keeps praying for me. And at restaurants in front of people i would i was you know at some point embarrassed uh which i go back and i think about like oh my goodness i was embarrassed that this guy was praying in a restaurant now i try to pray at restaurants as loud as i can <laughs> but uh i got when i got saved i realized that you know 
talking to Jada so much about it, like she she considers her parents her parents, right? We we can't find her biological mom now. The place that she was adopted from burned down. The only record we have is one sheet of paper. Um, but this woman being faithful in 1982 led my wife to the Lord. You know, God saved my wife, saved her parents, met me, saved me. And then I was in Japan sharing the gospel with hundreds of thousands of Japanese people. And, and it's like, oh, it was almost like, you know, this story that God was writing out. He's like, this is going to be a really good book. And here, here's where it is. And every time I share that story, like it, I wish I could just go meet her. Right. Just to thank her for like what I have now. Um, you know, I wouldn't have my children, I, you know, and I'm sure God, God could have had me meet another Christian woman and the, the story could have played out very similar. But um, the story that he wrote using Jada in 1982 um, has led us to this fight now and why we are so outspoken on abortion um, and, and really what it means to us. And, you know, Roe v. Wade was, an unjust court opinion. And, and we were trying to point that out that the, during Dred Scott, the Supreme Court said that black people weren't human, right? They said that they were not citizens, they were not human. And here we are, you know, 160 years later, 170 years later, and they, we, we had a law, not even a law, a court opinion saying that you can kill babies. Um, when was it time to not listen to the Supreme Court? And we were just telling people it's a state issue. It's state by state. And once they overthrew it and they overturned the Roe decision, which we had an amicus brief filed in that, which was pretty amazing. Uh, Bradley Pierce uh, for the Foundation to Abolish Abortion, Abolish Abortion Texas. He's a lawyer in, in Texas that writes all of our bills. Um, he wrote an amicus brief for that. And it was pointing them back to biblical standard like this is what god says and this is what we need to obey and uh praise god it got overturned the fight's still not over though many people think the fight's over but it's just begun and, and that and that's exactly where i was going to go because i i think and and, and perhaps rightfully so there was a, a bit of celebration in the christian community when that decision came down but i think a lot of people thought that well, now we can move on to something else, and and what we've seen, if anything, is, is that the pro-abortion side ha has ramped up. We call it what you want: propaganda efforts to find ways around it to solidify their hold in states that that uh, allow abortion. the The fight is not over by any stretch of the imagination. No, and uh, we actually have numbers that say abortions have actually gone up. And, and and the reason why we can say that is we are not taking into account the, the chemical abortion, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of that time uh, when you get the pill that it's unknown, you can do it from the comfort of your home. Like have some places shut down and save some babies. Yeah. Some States have shut down. There were people leaving Texas going into Louisiana. We have, we had 16 bills put in this past year to abolish abortion across 16 states. Um, I, I will say this, abortion is still alive and, and thriving. Uh, they're using our talking points now going state by state, saying it's a state issue, the states need to do their own thing. And what they're, what they're doing is they're getting around it by chemical abor abortion stuff, number one, um, which is, it's unfathomable that you can order it to your house in the comfort of your home, kill your baby. 
and there's no accountability for it. You, you, you can do whatever you want. Um, abortion is not going into end because it is a gospel issue and people hate God and people don't want to hear about God. And it's the church that needed to stand up and, and take a hold of this. But we have too many churches across this country that are saying, well, but what if this, what if this, what if rape, what if incest? And that's like saying you can kill, go, let's go to Nazi Germany and say, you can kill these Jews over here, but you can't kill these Jews here. The Christians would have been the first one to stand up and say, nope, sorry, you can't kill any Jews. You know, Bonhoeffer did that one thing. He stood up and he actually got put to death for it, for standing up. And uh, Wilberforce fought against slavery literally for 20 years going back and forth. And he finally was a part of it where they, where they abolished slavery. Abortion is going to be the same thing. God is going to end abortion. A lot of people don't realize that God wins. God already won. His son was the payment on the cross and Jesus is reigning right now. And, and, and it's over. Death has been defeated. And I'll tell you what, abortion will be ended, but it's going to be a fight. And then people have to be willing to lay down their lives and, and fight this fight because it is worthy to have 60 plus million babies have been killed since 72 when Roe was instilled. Now that it's over, babies are still being killed. I wish I could say that abortion is over, that like some switch just went off and they said, yep, yeah, we're, we're done with abortion. That's not the case. But abortion is being done in almost every state right now. Dennis Sarfate with us on this week's edition of the Dan Scott Show. And we're coming down the home stretch. We're going to have to wrap it up and let Dennis go. But the, the, the thing I keep coming back to with this, and because it, it is a fight and, and it is an issue that, that gets people on both sides really passionate, maybe inflamed sometimes is even a better word. Christians, not all, but we, we in society, we paint with a, with a broad brush. Christians get a bad rap about, well, they only care about abortion, but then they don't care about the baby after it's born, and they start pointing to all the other societal ills. And I can remember a sermon that Tony Evans did as the the decision was looming before it had happened, and he kept talking about how as Christians we have to be pro-life from the womb to the tomb. Do you think that that's a justifiable criticism of Christians in general, that that the the fact that they, they care about the abortion but have not been as passionate about caring about that baby, that person, after they've been born? Well, you know, I will say this. Our organization, um, End Abortion Now, we actually will adopt. We have lawyers on standby to write the adoption papers. We'll pay for the hospital bills. We'll put up people in, in housing if they need housing. Um, that that's not the case in a lot of circumstances we have a, a network of about 800 churches worldwide that go out to an abortion mill and will lay down their life they will literally adopt babies we actually have moms that have been saved at an abortion clinic going in to kill their baby now come out and stand with us with that child in their arms um i will say this in colorado a, a, a few number of years back it was the um it was the Christians that stood up and adopted all of the children out of foster care. They emptied out the entire system of foster care in the state of Colorado. And they didn't understand how this happened. Every church had someone that adopted a baby 
And what ended up happening is the government said, well, this isn't good. And so they started putting more regulations on it. And what did they do? It filled back up their foster care system. So it's like, yes, Christians have failed. Like we've, uh, we've abandoned adoption, which was what we should do. And we say that we need to end abortion first, and then we can go and fix the, you know, the foster care thing. Like this is our focus. We want to end abortion. Mm -hmm. There should be groups that are working on the foster kids because foster care is, it's a, it's riddled with all kinds of problems. You know, you have people taking advantage of the foster care system just to make a quick buck from the government. Uh, children are being just left in there, institutionalized. Like foster care is awful. Christians need to step up and do what is right. Um, so I do believe that there are those some that maybe just speak out against it. But if you're going to speak out against abortion, you better be ready to say, I'll adopt your baby if you have it. Because if you're not ready to say that, then I, I don't you know I don't know how you can actually f tell someone don't kill your baby don't kill your baby well, what are you going to do to help me I'm not going to help you I'm just telling you you shouldn't kill your baby it's a moral thing no like we should be like don't kill your baby I'll adopt it or I'll find you a family like our church we have family on standby like my wife and I we're certified right now if a baby came and they called us and they said hey there's a woman about to kill her baby would you guys you will adopt it my pastor was just trying to adopt another one he adopted. His son was supposed to be born with spina bifida. The mom was going to abort it. They said, no, we'll, we'll take your son. We'll pay for everything. Don't abort him. He was born perfectly whole. No, they, they have an MRI of the baby's spine a, a few weeks before he was born. And you could see the hole in his spine. And when August came out, nothing. Miraculously healed. And so we just say it is our duty as Christians, yes, to speak up against it. But you better be ready to take that baby if, if that's the, if that's what needs to be done. The the old the old saying, put your money where your mouth is, right? Right. Amen. Dennis, we could go on and and I'm trying to be respectful of your time because I know you've got a little one who's going to be demanding your attention here in, in just a few minutes. But but tell people about your organization and and if they want information, if churches and you said you've got them all over the world, if churches who are listening to this and, and we have listening audiences all over the world. Tell people how they can get involved, how they can just find out more information about what you're doing and why you individually are so passionate about this. Sure. So endabortionnow.com will be the organization where churches can reach out. We actually will send you everything you need to go out to the abortion mill. We'll send you the cameras. We'll send you everything, uh, all of the signs and all of the literature you need. Um, and that's the prophetic side. That's that's the church side. My group that I'm I'm the head of is Red State Reform, which is Take Action for Life is our 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 project. Red State Reform is our major lobbying group. We did it that way. That way we could fight. You know, 2020 was real with COVID. We we were fighting mass mandates and and closures. But not everyone that doesn't want to wear a mask cares about saving babies. So we had to come up with takeactionforlife.org, which is our abortion uh, lobbying side. And what we do is we go to legislators and, and talk with them. If they are a pro-life uh, claiming uh, Christian that ran for office and won, then we hold them to and say, you need to hold to what you ran on and be pro-life. And, and we had 16 bills in last year, 26 the year before, um, a lot of people thought because of Roe will overturn, they didn't need to put state bills in, but now they're starting to realize that, oh yeah, we do need to do this. But we had uh, we had a, a thing at the Ark Encounter 
with Ken Ham, where we came in and spoke to Kentucky pastors and legislators. Um, but our group is focused on the lobbying. We're a grassroots lobbying. Uh, we go and we get the people to stand up, call their representatives and, and ask for action. And, and that's what I'm the head of. So you can go to takeactionforlife.org or endabortionnow.com and uh, get linked with us. Um, feel free to e <clears throat> email. There are emails are on there. And uh, looking forward to anyone that wants to get on board with us and partner with us. It, it's it's just for me fascinating to to hear the story of a guy whose obsession was baseball, and, and now his obsession is Jesus Christ and, and saving the lives of babies. That that journey is just a fascinating journey. Yeah, I, you know the the greatest compliment Dan that I ever received was from a former teammate, uh, Chris Barnwell. He had reached out to me. And I, the Daily Wire did an article on me. It, said, it was something about former MLB pitcher now saving babies. And uh, he said, of all the things that former teammates are doing, this is the one I'm most proud of. And, I, and it, it hit me like, okay, I mean, that was an amazing statement, you know, for him to, to tell me that. But he knew me before I was saved. He knew my, my, my heart before where I was just this unrepentant, unrepentative, like just – unrepented sinner of just myself being God and um, for him to see the change and actually see the change that I'm feeling, you know, mm -hmm. I knew who I was and I know who I am now, but for a teammate and a former teammate to know who I was then and to see what I'm doing now, um, that was probably the greatest compliment I ever received. Sometimes the only Bible that people read is what they see in us. That's right. And that's a great example of it. Dennis, thank you so much for your time again. No, thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. Anytime you want me to come on, I'll come back. And I told Dennis when he said that, that was a dangerous thing to say to me because I plan on having him back, and he and I probably talked for another 10 minutes about the state of baseball today and what we like and don't like about the pace of play rules and everything else. So get a chance to maybe talk a little more baseball in the future with Dennis Sarfate. But thank you, Dennis, again for your time. We'll take a break and come back and put a wrap on this week's show right after this. Stay with us. Every day there are children who leave school on Friday and eat little and sometimes nothing until they come back to school on Monday. It happens in every community, including yours. Many of these children live in circumstances that deprive them of basic needs necessary for a quality life. At Grand Slam Ministries, we want to change that. We want to invest in our children, giving them hope for the future. That investment includes necessities such as food, clothing, school supplies, and a safe environment to play, to study, to live. Please visit our website, GrandSlamMinistries.org, to find out more about our ministry and how you can help. We're just getting started. Will you come alongside us for the children's sake? Again, that's GrandSlamMinistries.org. Teenage boys and young men today are in crisis. Statistics show that a home without a father or male role model present is the single biggest indicator of poverty, behavior issues, drug and alcohol abuse, criminal activity, and yes, imprisonment. At Grand Slam Ministries, one of our core missions is developing a mentorship program to teach boys how to become strong Christian men and then teach those men to be the biblical husbands, fathers, and church and community leaders the Bible calls us to be. We need your prayers, 
We need your ideas, and we need your support. Visit our website, grandslamministries.org, to find out more about our mentorship mission and prayerfully consider how you may be able to assist us. Again, that website is grandslamministries.org. Follow us on social media. Search Grand Slam Ministries on Facebook and Grand Slam for God on Twitter. And don't forget Dan's personal and public figure sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You're listening to The Dan Scott Show, presented by Grand Slam Ministries. Back for a final few minutes here on this week's edition of the Dan Scott Show, presented by Grand Slam Ministries. Our thanks again to Dennis Sarfate for uh, being willing to join us. Uh, one of the great things about where God has led me in this, it, it started with the podcast that we began back during the pandemic in, in 2020, really right before the pandemic hit. And at the beginning, we called it Grumpy Old Broadcasters, which was a really appropriate title for the group that we had transitioned it into the Dan Scott show to more align it with where we knew God was leading us with this, but had the opportunity to talk to a lot of really, really cool guests. And some of them came simply by reaching out on social media. Dennis was one of those. Um, the interview that we did with John Finch from the father effect two weeks ago was one of those that we set up that way. Just recently, Jason Romano, who was on last week, had him on the podcast. Same thing, using basically Twitter to reach out and say, hey, would love to have you on the show. And, and that's how we got Dennis Sarfate on the podcast first over a year ago and wanted to come back and revisit that today because of, uh, A, his passion. B, you know me, I love to talk baseball. And now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, how that has changed what he and his organization are doing. And as you heard him say, if anything, the number of abortions has actually gone up since the uh, Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. So you uh, you can check out those organizations of his and uh, just prayerfully consider uh, what role maybe God is leading you into in, in this fight. I think the, the most important thing we have to remember as Christians is whatever we do, we have to do in love. And that's something that I believe we forget a lot. We get so caught up in the passion, so caught up in the in the battle that we forget that even when Jesus rebuked somebody, it was always done in love. And, and when he expressed anger, it was righteous anger. He's the guy that we are supposed to be trying to become more like. And I think that regardless of whether it's the abortion issue or any of the other issues that are really staring down Christians in the landscape today, we have to remember to be firm, to stand on our faith, not to compromise, but to do it in love. And that's one of the reasons that I really enjoy doing this show, is being able to take the time to delve into a topic or delve into the life of a person. Uh, or an issue, or in this case, able to combine both. But the premise of the show 
is God working in people's lives. And Dennis Sarfate is another one of those guys. His God basically was baseball. And somehow in Japan, a, a, an, an atheistic country that knows very little, if anything, about Jesus Christ is where he found Christ as his Lord and Savior and, and what God has done in his life then. Those are the stories that we want to tell here on this show. And, and I just continue to be reminded of the the walls that God knocked down to get us to this point. And some of you may have seen the run that Furman University's basketball team made to get to the NCAA tournament for the first time in 43 years and then upset the University of Virginia. And I was fortunate enough to be on the call for that and my radio call of the the game-winning shot by J.P. Pegues got a lot of airplay nationally. CBS opened its coverage, in fact, the next two days with my call of that shot. And it was a it was a fun time. It was a wonderful moment. And as a broadcaster for a, a small school, a mid-major school, to, to have that moment on that stage, I'm not going to lie, it was really, really cool. But in the couple of weeks since, I have just been reminded that while and I believe God allowed me to have that moment. That's not my purpose. This is my purpose, doing this show and building this nonprofit organization, Grand Slam Ministries, has been clearly revealed to me as God's purpose for my life. And I am just praying for more opportunities to speak at churches, more opportunities to speak to whatever groups might have me to come and share my testimony and the miracle that God did in my life, as well as what Grand Slam Ministries is all about and, and how we need support to grow. So I'm just going to toss it out there. I, I don't care if you're here in the upstate of South Carolina. I don't care if you're listening on Cornerstone Christian uh, Radio over the Internet in Los Angeles. I don't care if you're listening on Paisley Radio in Scotland. I am willing to come wherever it takes. I'll go wherever God sends me to share my testimony because he did a miracle in my life, folks, and to talk about Grand Slam Ministries and our core missions of mentorship of young men and also making sure that our children have the basic necessities and more to give them the best chance not just to survive but to thrive in our area and beyond. You know, we're, we're in a position right now in, in the first year of this radio show using the platform as a way to get the word out about our core missions, hoping that it's going to lead to support, not hoping, believing it's going to, because God didn't get us to this point to let this thing dry up on the vine. I know that. Getting us to a point where we do have sustainable support and we're able to not only continue to grow this radio show and get it on more and more affiliates around the country and perhaps around the world, who knows where he's going to take this thing, but to, be gay, to begin funding those core missions within the next year and start putting some programs in place that will either establish something new and different or come alongside some existing programs who are doing fantastic work already in those areas of mentorship and helping children. So I'm just asking you to prayerfully 
consider how you can help what we are doing here. And that may be by doing nothing but praying for us. And if that's all you can do, man, could we really ask for anything more than that? Because as we're told in the Bible, the effective, fervent prayer of believers can work wonders. So that's that's the main thing we're asking for you to pray for us, this show, our missions at Grand Slam Ministries, that God will lead, will follow, and he will take this where he wants it to go. And I've said this before, my time frame is right now. Let's do everything now. And one thing that he has taught me through many mistakes I've made in the past, he's going to do it on his time. So that's the main thing you can pray about. Dan does not get ahead of God and try to do things on his own. We need support help. We need people to come along, especially somebody who has fundraising and grant writing experience that can come in and and just take that and run with it. And and we need sustainable support. You can go to grandslamministries.org. There is a place there where you can uh, donate online. And, And I've shared this before. Initially, if we could get 200 people giving $25 a month and 200 people giving $10 a month, we could do everything that we want to do initially from a radio standpoint and begin funding those core missions well ahead of schedule. So just pray about what God is leading you to do. Uh, And again, maybe it's just prayer. And, And if so, that's absolutely fine because we will take all the prayers that we can get. But just consider ways that you can help. And you can always drop me an email Dan at danscottshow.org, dan at danscottshow.org, with any thoughts or suggestions that you might have. And we're also looking to grow the radio show. And uh, so if, if you're listening from a part of the country that does not have an affiliate with us, then maybe that's something you can help us with as well. Whatever it is, we just greatly appreciate you spending your time with us each week. And we look forward to being back with you with another episode next Sunday. Until then, I'm Dan Scott saying God bless you and so long, everybody.